How do you show up and speak out? POW invites you to join the Stoke the Vote movement, to engage, to show up at POW events, and to vote this November. We will host over 40 in-person events from coast to coast with our alliance of professional climbers, snowboarders, skiers, runners, and bikers. From our fall Stoke Fest film tour to shop talks at climbing gyms, bike shops, and outdoor stores to a college tour with POW's founder and professional snowboarder Jeremy Jones. We are fired up to connect and inspire you and the rest of the outdoor state. POW and our alliance of athletes invite you to meet the moment because midterms matter now more than ever. Join us. So in Ventura, I partnered with like a land trust and we had during the Thomas fire, pretty much all the foothills above town that are oil and gas burned. Um, and we bought 4,000 acres up there and we've created like a ton of, we've, so I designed like 50 miles of trail. We've built about like 18 miles so far. And like, I think I've seen like almost 200,000 visits to these, like to this land preserve in the last year. Ventura is like 400,000 people. And I think it's like 40% immigrant like mostly hispanic it's working class and those people don't have access to nature so like in a very weird roundabout way in like very urban environments like wildfire is creating these opportunities for like a reset for like people to have a chance to like acquire public lands in some way um, and have access to them which i think isn't like a very commonly discussed benefit hello everyone and welcome to life with fire podcast I'm your host, Amanda Monti, and I am currently recording this in the front seat of my car in a neighborhood in Bishop, California. Big shout out to Bishop, somewhere that I've never been before. Got some tacos at Los Palmas earlier, and I got some gear from the Mammoth Gear Exchange, and I'm kind of loving this little town. I'm loving this area. Went up to Mammoth Lakes yesterday. Uh, sat in a hot spring this morning, went for a run and a swim this afternoon up in the mountains, and I don't know how it can get much better. Um, I can understand why a lot of people live here, and I can also understand why a lot of people have been telling me to come visit for a long time. So, super stoked to be in Bishop. I'm heading up on a four-day backpacking trip. It's actually, we're going to be taking horses up and then walking around, doing some fly fishing. So, really excited to get up there and check things out. Uh, I just got off of a trip on the Middle Fork of the Salmon that I'm working on a story about for Modern Huntsman. This is a big work trip that all kind of came together very last minute, and I'm actually really excited because I am going to be having to head north at some point. I got to go home, and that means that I get to go through Northern California and Oregon, and I get to chat with some folks in person for the first time for the podcast. I'm really excited to share those interviews with you guys. I'll be talking with a few folks from the Oregon State University like Fire Extension in Southern Oregon. I'm hoping to touch base with a few folks in Northern California. However, with a lot of the fires that are happening there right now, I think they might be a little busy, but my intent is to link up with some people. And if you're in the Reno, Tahoe, Redding, Mount Shasta, Eugene, all the way up to basically Vancouver, Washington areas, let me know and we can link up and maybe have a coffee or a beer and maybe chat for the podcast. I don't know. Let me know if you're in the area. I'd love to link up, even if just for a hot minute to say hi and meet people in person. So holla at your girl. 
But I wanted to say that I just got off of the Middle Fork Salmon, and I feel like this is really relevant because we've been talking about how outdoor recreation is impacted by wildfire, and this trip was very defined by wildfire. You know, rolling in, the moose fire is happening up there right now. Um, I used to work on the Salmon Chalice in 2017 on a fire crew, and I was amazed at how much has changed but also you you know coming from north fork idaho down to salmon the moose fires kind of burned along the edge of the salmon river there on the other side of the of the river from the road um it wasn't super smoky when i first got in but once we got on the river it was it was a little smoky the first couple of nights and then maybe you've heard if you're a rafter if you're familiar with the salmon chalice they had this big debris flow a few weeks ago as a result of a fire last summer and some rain events and this debris flow is really impacting the access to this area. So really you can only fly into the middle fork right now if you're using a raft, but if you're on a kayak or on like one of those little inflatable duckies, they call them, you can navigate this debris flow. But the debris flow is really impacting the outfitters uh, experiences or the folks that are going out with outfitters um, because it's forcing folks to fly into the Indian Creek put in rather than the Boundary Creek put in. So you're missing a big chunk of the river. And another thing that happened that I uh, impacted me directly really was that I wanted to go fishing, but the water was super cloudy, um, sort of that chocolate milk color. Actually, not really. It was a little darker than that, but you could tell that the debris flow had a really huge impact on water quality and water clarity, and then therefore the trout fishing. So yeah, it was wild to see that landscape. Uh, you know, I, I when I was there before, we had this fire on Camas Creek or near Camas Creek that um, is about halfway, I guess, down the river from where we started on this trip. So it was super cool to see the area that I fought fire in previously. This couple little drainages that we basically like kind of burned off uh, in order to prevent any impacts to these camps on the river. Um, and so we went up there and we checked out those areas and we looked at how those areas were impacted. And I was really stoked to see that everything was kind of flourishing. You could see sort of the charred remains of some of the larger sagebrush and I believe mountain mahogany. Uh, but most of it was coming back. It was coming back as grass and shrubs and sagebrush. And so that was, that was cool to see. But really the entire length of that river, the Middle Fork Salmon, is just kind of dotted with various fire histories or various fires from the past so it was cool to see some areas that had burned really hot some of the more higher severity areas that basically have this secessional vegetation coming back uh the one i'm thinking of is a 2008 fire i don't remember the name of it but uh you know it had basically nuked off a lot of the timber up there in this certain area um so to see sort of sage coming back and and brush coming back um it was kind of intriguing to just see that secessional vegetation coming back and like how those landscapes are are shifting. I was just amazed at how much fire history that whole river has and to see it and to be impacted by the smoke and to have the water basically be running mud brown. It was very relevant to this series, to this outdoor recreation and wildfire series. Which brings us to today's episode with Dylan Oslager. Uh, Dylan is a scientist. He's a trail builder, a mountain biker, and environmental advocate. Uh, he's doing a lot of a lot of things. He's also the executive director of Sage Trail Alliance, which you heard a little bit about in the introduction to this episode. Um, 
Dylan has a ton of cool experience and was a great person to sort of connect the at least the mountain biking community to the wildfire conversation. So it was really great to have to have Dylan on. Dylan is also a Protect Our Winners athlete, and Protect Our Winners is the sponsor for this episode. Uh, really just trying to find a better way to engage the outdoor community in these conversations, especially around wildfire, and trying to really encourage people to think more sort of objectively about wildfire. Uh, so that is kind of the purpose of us having all these episodes about outdoor recreation, just trying to get more folks interested in this conversation and uh, engage a different audience in thinking about wildfire. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to send a huge thank you to a recent donator, a patron, uh, Jenny Donovan. So thank you, Jenny, for supporting the podcast. And if you would like to support the podcast on Patreon, we would love that. It is directly supporting our work that we're doing on the road right now. And you can do that by clicking on the Patreon link in this episode's show notes. Or if you just go on Patreon and search Life with Fire podcast, you can find us there. If you support any of the tiers, uh, it's like $3 through $20 a month. Um, I'll send you some goodies from Mystery Ranch. Just got to send me your address. Um, a lot of patrons don't send me their addresses, and that's totally fine. But uh, if you'd like those goodies, you can send me your address when you sign up for the Patreon, and I will get that stuff out to you when I'm back home. Um, I think that's all I have for housekeeping, but thanks for supporting the podcast in general. I appreciate all the, the reviews that I, we've gotten recently. We've had a ton of new reviews recently. I love that. And have had a lot of new supporters on our Instagram. Uh, I don't know. Keep sharing it if it's if you're digging it. And if you think somebody else that you know will dig it, I don't know. Share it with them. And we appreciate all the support. So with that said, I'm going to stop talking. And let's get into our episode with Dylan Osliger. I grew up in the mountains a lot as a mountain bike and ski bum, climbed a lot as a kid um, and went to college kind of by accident in Montana. I was originally just going to be a ski guide um, and climbing guide and I ended up studying snow science um, and geology because it related to outdoor like stuff. I was still an avalanche forecaster and a backcountry ski guide while in college. Um, and all that work kind of transitioned into working as like an environmental scientist. So I worked for National Park Service as an ecologist and then went to start a PhD that I inevitably dropped out of, um, but in climate science uh, in geomorphology. And public lands, I guess, started post master's degree. I worked for the Nature Conservancy doing rangeland agriculture um, impacts on public lands, so like leasing. Um, and somehow that tumbled into public lands and private lands work. So like managing restoration projects for large private landowners in the Tahoe Basin and in Santa Barbara, um, and eventually doing like public trails across like a whole variety of land managers across the West US. So cool. it's a winding path. It's been sinuous, yeah. it's been unintentional, but yeah. <laughs> I love it, that's great. Just braiding all sorts of things together. Which brings me to like, how have you sort of braided, you've done, uh, you know, you've done some projects with like Yusufrecht and I believe other projects as well, they're creative projects kind of around wildfire or gen like adjacent to wildfire. And I'm curious how that's sort of braided into your work or like why that's felt like something that is important to talk about. Yeah, um, I guess I've done a few films at this point. Um, 
I cannot remember all of them. I think there's like three or four out there and like some zines and little things. Um, yeah, mixed in with like the academic work and like the public lands work. Um, I race mountain bikes professionally and have for five, six years now. Um, and then skiing as well. And I think I just wasn't, I mean, like marketing is part of it. Like when you say you race or you do anything professionally, like, yes, you do that activity, um, but you are paid to sell product. That's just the reality of it. Um, and that can feel like a very heavy weight. I think a lot of people understand that, that like there's a conscience aspect to that of like, is this really helpful when you're talking about climate change or public lands and you're trying to shill off more consumerism, um, but you do get the benefit of having like marketing money, you have a budget. Um, and I think when I was forced to like use budget and work with videographers, like there's enough mountain biking shredits out there. There's enough like <laughs> dudes going real fast down mountains. That's great. Um, but I realized like if I wasn't into watching those videos, like I wasn't going to make those videos. So yeah, I kind of pitched doing more like science oriented projects with my like athletic partners. And, um, yeah, somehow that's like worked out. I kind of thought it was going to like crater my riding career, bringing that up, but thus far people are still like moderately into it. So we'll run it till it does. I mean, that's the stuff I like to watch, like shredits don't do it for me either. And I am constantly trying to sort of battle that in my own creative work, like uh, not battle it. I don't know. There's a good place. There's a place for shredits, but yeah. I agree. I do think uh, like I'm just I'm just more engaged in in show in movies like or in films like Usufruct and things like that, that kind of broaden my perspective of, I don't know broaden my perspective of like climate issues in a specific region, especially, and especially with pine beetles. Like that project was really cool because it's something I don't think about very often. It's not really a problem that we have in the Northwest. And I haven't really talked about the Rockies or like the pine beetle problem on the podcast. So that was kind of a great, like, I know that they exist and I know the sort of general problem, but it was a great sort of introduction to that issue for me. And especially coming at it from the recreation angle. Um, can you talk about how wildfire has sort of, how you've like found, found like an outlet or like kind of found a way to braid wildfire into all that work? Um, yeah, for sure. Um, and I guess, yeah, I should preface like alongside you, like, I love the creative shredded things. Like I'm just not like, totally. I don't create funny, entertaining videos, you know, like that's not my strength. And like, there's a place for those for sure. I love them. Like, I think I just found my niche is like, a nerd that likes riding bikes and so you know it works and like that was kind of where the wildfire and like the pine beetles and all these other things kind of came in is that reality that like that's what I know and like that's what gets me excited like I think about everyone I ride bikes with and like the amount of times I apologize to them for like nerding out about rocks or like invasive species things like that like that's why I ride bikes like totally I love racing don't get me wrong but like I'm not out there going on like, like I went for a ride this morning and there's no part of me that's like, I'm doing this to become fast. Like <laughs> I'm just out there to have a good time and like see what's around. Um, yeah. And I think that's like where the pine beetle thing came from and like where the wildfire thing came from. It's just like experience or like just kind of, it's the reality of like your surrounding environment. Like that's the one, you know, best. Um, and for me, like when I dropped out of my PhD, I was training as a mountain bike athlete here in Santa Barbara, Ojai as well. Um, and that year that I, basically the year I dropped out 
like the semester following the Thomas fire, um, which at the time was the largest wildfire in California's history. I think now it's like fifth or maybe sixth. Um, and that was only in like 2019. So we're doing great. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's all fine. Things are but, totally yeah. fine. <laughs> it's fine. Like, you know, whenever the record started in like 1932 and most of the big ones are like last decade, no, no patterns. It's fine. Um, yeah, you know, and like that was the reality for me is like all the trails that I was using to train all the year, like trails that I had as like an escape from grad school because grad school is like not the most fun time in anyone's life. Um, it was all burned. Like I think Thomas Fire, we were like 280,000 acres, give or take. It might've been up in the 300s, um, but it's surrounded Ojai. So like everything around Ojai burned. Um, most of the mountains to the east of Santa Barbara burned like all the way to Ventura and you get a bunch of bad things like you know a we have poodle brush down here which sucks so like the three years following a fire like you're not going out on public lands like that's poison oak but like for a month and it's way more painful um and you just get invasive species spread. And the reality is, is like all of our trails here are very steep. Like we have really steep mountain ranges um, and those don't do well when it burns, <laughs> like they just erase. And we also had mudslides. So I think I lost like 80 miles of trail in that one fire. It might've been like 88 miles of trail um, and no one was fixing them. So I was just left without trail. And so, yeah, I like kind of worked with this nonprofit as a volunteer. Um, and somehow in a very roundabout way, that's like kind of become my life now is like my main thing most of the year is restoring trails post wildfire on public lands. Um, there just really isn't a budget for it um, at a federal or even a state level. Um, so I do it from like a nonprofit side and then that's kind of evolved to focus on like restoring historic trail too. So addressing like a really long federal backlog of public trails that have burned since like the thirties basically. Um, so yeah, I, I guess fires become kind of my job security as well as like what I deal with on a day to day, but most of the trails I ride are like post burn wildfire, whether it's here or even in Tahoe, like the Dixie, I mean, we're already riding a lot of stuff from the Dixie and the Calder that burned eight months ago, you know, so. Right. Yeah. Like how, how is your thinking shifted in terms of like riding in those burn areas? Like part of, to me, part of adaptation to wildfire is starting to accept the way that these landscape landscapes change post wildfire because a lot of the trails that we love and a lot of the places that we love I think will affect like will inevitably be impacted by fire soon so I'm wondering if that's something that you thought about in terms of like the way that you experience these landscapes or like the way that you maybe can appreciate a landscape post fire yeah for sure. Um, like, yeah, I know that's like, like, it's kind of like <laughs> me, like begging, or it's kind of like me, like desperately grasping for some sense of hope, despite like a lot of these trails are just like kind of nuked out. I've seen yeah. a lot of videos and photos from the PCT and especially in Washington state. Um, and I'm like, yeah, that's devastating. And I think like, I do think a part of adaptation is going to be learning to like accept that landscapes change. You know what I mean? Yeah. I definitely think I no, I agree 100%. And I think that's like, like fire definitely brings opportunity. Um, yeah, like when a trail you've ridden, like I think here in, in SoCal, you think about kind of the chaparral ecosystem and like trails smell like greasewood and it's sweet and it's like very deserty. 
and it's very quintessential like Southwest and that's beautiful in its own right. Um, and once a trail burns, like, because we've had such high levels of suppression down here, like oh, you yeah. just lose the entirety of the chaparral ecosystem. And we traditionally get like black mustard down here. Um, we get like bromes. It's not great. Um, totally. <laughs> so it's like, honestly, I think when it comes to like trails, you understand burning. I think for me, it's like, you get used to what has become, but I think, well, what I hope, I guess, is more that like the average user starts to see like kind of their place in trails and in like maintaining is like a hard word because I don't expect everyone to like come out like with a shovel and like be doing stuff for sure. Um, but more like, you know, noticing invasive species spread and like understanding that there's like a sense of like maybe letting a place heal prior to visiting it quickly. Like we saw that a lot in Santa Barbara is like the place burns, it's kind of deemed safe, people come back. And because a landscape's so raw, you just have this really um, susceptible landscape to spread of like thistle and mustard and like invasive species along that disturbed corridor. Um, so yeah, I think that people just need to have like, I think fires will provide like a better understanding of people with like the impact we truly can have on like a raw landscape. Same time, fire provides like so much opportunity. Like it's so much easier to restore a historic trail after it burns than it is to like restore a historic trail that's like enclosed in, you know, like big pine, like Ceanothus or like, you know, in like really thick Ceanothus and things like that. Like brushing through that requires like four chainsaws as where like, if it burns, you're just kind of like knocking things away and then you have a trail again. Totally. So there's definite like here and there. And I've also started expanding into like increased equitable access. Like fires do provide this thing of like a lot of, land is landlocked through private industry or just like non-accessible to public. Um, so like land sales are far more common post-fire. Um, so in Ventura, I partnered with like a land trust and we had during the Thomas fire, pretty much all the foothills above town that are oil and gas burned. Um, and we bought 4,000 acres up there and we've created like a ton of, we've, so I designed like 50 miles of trail. We've built about like 18 miles so far and like we're doing a lot of oak tree restoration and like clearing out mustards and doing like, um, I've done really cool experiments with like vetiver grass. So like stabilizing hillsides with like non-natives that aren't germinating, but like capture oak sap, like capture oak, um, see like, you know, seeds and you can plant deer grass and you can basically like recreate native ecosystems through like really cool ecological engineering. And at the same time, I think I've seen like almost 200,000 visits to these, like this land preserve in the last year. Ventura is like 400,000 people. And I think it's like 40% immigrant, like mostly Hispanic, it's working class. And those people don't have access to nature. So like in a very weird roundabout way in like very urban environments, like wildfire is creating these opportunities for like a reset for like people to have a chance to like acquire public lands in some way. Um, and have access to them, which I think isn't like a very commonly discussed benefit. That is so um, cool. <laughs> oh my weird, gosh. But, I mean, yeah. like people won't be able to see my face because this is obviously a podcast, but my mouth was just like agape that whole time, like hearing about this because I had no clue that this happens. That's yeah, crazy. it's really nice. Like California is a very crowded place and like land's very expensive. And so it's really hard, even with things like 30 by 30 and like conservation initiatives that are like wildfire adjacent it's very hard to like provide nature access um 
to people that might not have it. And I think that's like part of this conversation equally. It's like <laughs> no one on their own, like, you know, is really going to make a ginormous difference uh, when it comes to like wildfire policy or wildfires in general. But like, you know, public sentiment's important, but you really have to like build people up from like ground zero, which is just getting outside. Totally. Um, yeah. So that's fantastic. That is such cool. That is super cool work. Um, do you partner? Um, you said you do some restoration for public lands. Do you partner with like the Forest Service and stuff on that or cool? Yeah. Lots I'd love to hear about that. Is that. Yeah. So like the Forest Service is actually, I think, I mean, those people are overworked and underpaid. I'll say that like right, right off. It's so hard. Like no doubt. Oh, and nowadays, like, I mean, I normally deal with like district rangers and recreation officers, um, district supervisors. And honestly, like, I, I really feel for those people, like the amount of people you get who come in and don't realize like that you get a lot of details and like half your staff is really only there for two months and then you have to retrain a new set. And with wildfire work, like most of the recreation officers are pulled from like rec work to be put on wildfire, um, which isn't completely necessary, but like, I don't think it's any secret that like the US Forest Service has had less staff, like I think 30% less staff than we did in like the seventies. Uh-huh. Um, and while we're doing like these hiring moves, like it's not really pushing the needle in all, like, you know, in a broad spectrum across the Forest Service, a lot of it's focused on resources and on wildfire. Um, Mm-hmm. So yeah, when I do get to talk to Forest Service staff and they're not like slammed with a, you know, a fire or like not having any office staff. Um, yeah, we do a lot of like restoration work together. We do a lot of post-fire um, like signs, like educational informational signs. I'll go and build kiosks in the middle of nowhere. Um, they've helped me with like, we'll do cost shares sometimes. Um, which is really nice. Like it'll let me afford like a mule team or horses to come bring in like wood and build retaining walls. Um, But really at the end of the day, the forest service doesn't have a lot of money for too much. Um, They do have staff time. And I think not enough people get engaged with like their local forest service office. Um, Like they're really inviting. Like they'll, they'll give me staff time because we have a good working relationship. They've seen that I've gone and invested in the forest. Like, they'll give me an archaeologist to help with like a grant through the federal government. So I've gotten some Great American Outdoors Act funding, um, some like bear funding. So like B uh-huh. E or B A E R, like yeah. the post fire, like trail work stuff. Um, yeah. I mean, it's really cool. Like there's a lot of money that can be acquired, but it's, it's not something that your local forest service office is going to do on their right. own accord. Like they don't have the bandwidth to run a bear crew. Like, if a bear crew's coming in who are usually hotshots or like some form of like post-fire like staff, you need someone else to direct them, like tell them where to go, like where to clean up trails. And that can hugely benefit a community, but it really requires like some weird outside, like, you know, volunteer service agreement, individual or group. Um, so yeah, I think I've been working with Forest Service for almost a decade now between like the Sierra, the Tahoe and the Los Padres National Forests. Um, and then also in Montana, but like the opportunities you get are really cool. It's not just about building like new trail, but about what you can find out there. Um, yeah, the forest service kind of like, will provide me old maps, which is like a godsend, honestly, like seeing stuff from the thirties, like 
you can't really find that stuff online, but I've been able to find trails to like spike camps from the Civilian Conservation Corps and like cool old machinery. And you're seeing Chevys out like 15 miles into wilderness. Um, things that just really provide like a deepened relationship maybe with public lands. Um, and really like I wouldn't have found that if I didn't try and create this like relationship with federal employees like the Forest Service. Um, which I think there's a lot more like distrust for people in the Forest Service when like honestly more often than not, they're like no. pretty similar to all of us. Totally. Yeah. I have yet to meet, I mean, the Forest Service employs so many wonderful people. I have tons of friends that work with them. I used to work for them. Um, like I feel like on an individual basis, like these folks are really cool and they're really excited to, to facilitate these partnerships, especially with, um, with guides and outfitters and folks in recreation. And then just like on this like sort of broad national cultural scale, you know, things kind of start falling apart. However, uh, like I said, I love, uh, I, I have a lot of friends that work with, with that agency. And I worked on um, a forest the last two weeks actually. And it was really cool to hear about the partnerships, like I said, that they had with um, some guides and outfitters in the area who were really sort of invested in this, these trail systems for some hunting that they were, that they were doing, some trips they were doing. And so they were going out and they were clearing these trails post fire, but also um, kind of like post windfall. So regardless of sort of the disturbance event, but these folks were volunteering their time and they had this great partnership. And I don't think it can be overstated how important those partnerships are as the Forest Service really struggles with, with staffing. And like, as more and more of these people come in that are really progressive and they're really looking for those partnerships. And I think that's a really important way that I think the outdoor industry can get involved in public lands is just being more sort of invested in that and just asking questions and talking to the district ranger and talking to the district supervisor and forest supervisor, whatever, about those potential opportunities. And it's cool to see that you have capitalized on that sort of capitalized is a weird word, but sure. no, it's accurate. It's like, I mean, you do have a dollar value time to your volunteering, right? Like mm -hmm. the forest service, I'm pretty sure right now it's like 2860. Like if you volunteer an hour for the forest service, technically to the forest service, the value of that time is like 28 bucks and 60 cents, which like, I think when you start thinking about it and you kind of hit the nail on the head with like getting the industry to invest time and money. And like, this is something I've slowly been chugging away on. Like you know, I still race bikes, but my contract was specialized these days, like does not require me to race at all. I can entirely for my paycheck, just do trail work and like run volunteer days and specialized will give me cash to support, like buying tools and buying food and like setting up people to camp and volunteer with me. Um, they outfit like my staff who do trail work on public lands, like starting to get companies to see like the investment that needs to be made in the foundation of like, you're not going to sell a bike if you don't have trails. Um, and the hunting and fishing industry, like, oh, you're not fucking bullet has been like on top of this since Robert Mann Pittman. So like what, 1933, it's great. Um, we're not behind at all. Um, and I bring that up all the time. And every time I say excise tax, I feel like I get like stared out of rooms, but like in some, in some way, shape or form, you kind of need this investment back, you know? And I think it's hard because everyone wants some form of marketing from it. Um, and like, there is a way to get marketing from it, you know, whether it's like talking about stories or like trail restoration or like the value you're providing in volunteer labor, but also like when you're talking about capitalizing, like 
the biggest influence I've ever seen on public officials on like whether that's all the way at like the fed level, state level, or even like the forest service is if you can bring someone who actually like is high up in a company to those zoom meetings or to in-person meetings. And they talk about how many people they employ and like how much taxes they pay to a district and how many people like they encourage individually to like get out on public lands. I think all of a sudden like moods change, mm. especially for elected officials, um, people who aren't like detailed to a job, but I think, yeah, as weird as it is, like the outdoor industry has never really pressured public lands by saying like how many people get out and make an economic impact on public lands. Um, I was talking about like trails and like, especially gravel roads recently with some folks and like gravel roads, like, yeah, sometimes they suck. And like, people don't really understand like, you know, the difference between a resource extraction road versus like, you know, if it's like a fire break um, or, you know, whatever else reason it's created, but like they all have very clear, like kind of characteristics to them. Um, but I don't think like they're never going to work on those roads because of recreational activity. Um, the same way trails are like kind of a lower quote unquote priority, like there's no numbers to them for the most part, especially like region to region. Um, but people who do know the numbers are those in the outdoor industry. They know how much they're selling. They know like how many people are sending. Um, so it's just kind of this weird thing where like the outdoor industry does have like an onus as much as I hate saying like there's a responsibility, like you do have an onus to like be involved in public lands. Um, otherwise you're kind of just like fleecing the sheep. So. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I feel like that's kind of like the point we're getting to is that people are going to realize pretty quickly that like, like being involved in policy or advocacy in some capacity or in public lands, volunteering, literally having any sort of accountability to the landscapes that we love and recreate in is like, kind of becoming more and more essential. Like we can't, we can't really like continue and I hate to say the word exploitative, exploitative. Is that, a, is that how you say that? I think word? you're on top of it. Yeah. Um, I hate to like use that word explicitly, but I feel like our relationship to public lands right now is somewhat exploitative. I would say yes. in terms, I mean, even just talking about myself, like the amount of times that I email my Senator or email, like the local forest service office about things is slim to none <laughs> no and I get it that's it's... alarming and like I'm like I should probably be doing more of this advocacy work because I'm like I'm I helped out on this forest like I said the last two weeks and the amount of people that we got emails from that were like what's happening here why is this not water barred what are we doing for erosion control in this area why are we allowing this to happen here in just two weeks was incredible and I was like I was like yeah as like somebody who's answering those emails this is complicated but as somebody who appreciates people being accountable to their public lands i love this i like love that people are just sending all these pointed emails about certain things to the office and expecting answers um and i would love to it's see good. people doing that <laughs> that's kind of the future of it all i mean i think that was disheartening like in a lot of ways like when we did the like master forest plan for like the Bitterroots and for the Bridgers and like Tetons area for that was pretty recent in Montana like I think we only had something like 10,000 total comments over like four years um which is like less than like a Montana midterm by a lot um yeah I think like you know there's like places where you can write in like that's kind of thing of like having a relationship with your local forest service office can make a big difference in something like a forest plan or like a forest fire that's a place to get involved like writing emails to senators like 
yes, it makes a massive difference, but also like I was on a call with McClintock's chief of staff last week and like, I, it doesn't uh. matter who I had on that <laughs> call. Like <laughs> it was more just to like check the box that I was like, yep, like on public record, we chatted, but like, they don't care. Um, I don't think that man has sponsored a bill in his entirety time in, yeah, that's, it's great. Um, but like there are certain, there are certain brick walls that like you can ram your head into forever and it's not gonna, yeah, not gonna get you too far. So I really do like, like the idea of local, like as much as I think federal elections like incredibly important, please vote in the midterms. Like, but like local stuff, whether it's like a local resource officer or even up to your like local district, like those elections are done in like a couple hundred votes and they can make such a more massive difference in like your local forest or trail system, um, rivers, et cetera, like then someone in Washington who has probably never visited and will never visit. Like, yeah. And doesn't state. know like the unique individual localized issues that are impacting those areas. Like, I think that's another important point in all of this is just how localized, like how place-based a lot of these like management decisions are or should be. And like, it just changes so dramatically, like literally from you know, you can drive a half an hour from there and probably find a different ecosystem that requires fire in a different capacity. So just like finding these, you know, understanding that these decisions are so local and so place-based and understanding that these widespread sort of management things that are coming from the White House or coming from the Washington Office of the Forest Service are effective, but what's more effective is being really involved sort of locally and understanding what's going on locally and understanding the your local fire regime and understanding, you know, those kinds of things. So just like going from like the local voting thing to like also understanding like what those local place-based issues are. It's pretty key. Like I'm working on a trail guide right now, like for the area, which really isn't like entirely necessary. There's already a trail guide. It's just more on like local ecosystems and like differences of trails. Like I live here at 200 feet above sea level, maybe maybe 150 and in half an hour I can be at 8,200 mm-hmm. um, on a single road. Like if totally. I pull out, make two turns and go to 33, I can be at Pine Mountain at 8,200 feet. And like, I can go from desert to like full, you know, deciduous forest pretty quickly. Um, and people think that there's a single aspect of like thinning here or like forest management, totally. um, very different. Yeah. So I think that's kind of the idea I'm hoping more. And like, that was the whole point of the films I've been doing or like, you know, all the writing that I do is, less to like tell people about me or like me getting to go ride my bike somewhere and more about just like a scientist or like someone who's working on like a local level isn't someone in a white coat like you don't need a patch on your shoulder to like show that you're official in that aspect um I think it's just observational like what you're saying at its core is like being outside isn't like a practice in self like being outside is a way to have like a relationship with your surroundings that you're probably seeing like the nuances and you know rhythms of more often than anyone else and just like taking note of like small things you know like when things bloom like you know overgrowth or when certain like animals are coming out like it's really simple to do and it's empowering like I think more and more I'm less of an objective kind of person and more of like an experience kind of person when I go outside like peaks are great these days like still love backcountry skiing but like at the end of the day like I more have questions that I want to answer and like if I come out of a trip with more questions and answers probably did it right you know like Mm -hmm. I think that's just what I'm getting from the whole thing is like as much as the like industry needs to change its relationship to the outdoors I think a lot of like 
recreation needs to change its, change its relationship to the outdoors, um, which happening like bit by bit, you know, the conversations change and like new people come to the fore leading those conversations. Um, but changing like policy and things like that, like <laughs> how fast does that happen at a Fed level? It's just a lot slower of a moving machine than like local. So, yeah. And kind of in that vein, what are you, this is kind of, this is my last question anyway, but what do you recommend of folks who are interested in like joining this conversation or like becoming greater advocates for public land or like looking for that in, on like the public level, what's your suggestion for that? Like that first step, I guess. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's like a little bit cache and then like, you know, it's just, it is really just getting outside and like having personal thoughts. I think like people know when you're a robot or when you're sending like a form letter and there's nothing wrong with that, like in the least, but like having a relationship with a place, like that's how you connect with people. Um, and I like strongly believe in local connections, whether it's like with local people, local government or like local landscapes. I do truly think that is like the pathway to, you know, local management and like true change in this country. Um, but that said, like, there are also just these larger things going on that do require engagement at like kind of a duty as a citizen level, which really is like voting and making your voice heard. And similar to the scientist aspect, like you have a lot more power with your voice at like a voting level at a federal level than I think people realize they do. Like something simple, like 20 comments on an Instagram post of like a federal senator is enough to make their staff consider changing their position on that. Like 20 comments isn't a lot really. <laughs> yeah. If we get down to it, you know, like sending in those letters does make a difference. Um, and especially voting. Cause like at the end of the day, those people at the higher levels, like they might not understand your local landscape, but they just want to keep their jobs. Like, and if they think they're at threat of losing their jobs, like they're going to shift their position to be more enmeshed with the local populace, which is you. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think that's the thing. It's like, I think just getting outside and like having a relationship with a place and expressing that to other people at like a whole variety of levels is really great. Um, I do think that like organizations like POW make that really easy. Like, I do think that's like one of the main benefits of things like protect our winters. So yeah, I think just like making sure like you're getting outside and like including, you're not in an echo chamber, like talk to people outside your normal realm about like what you're seeing, like why you care, be genuine about it. Like get outside because you love it. Like it's not to be famous or like you know, be an influencer. All right, that is what we have for you today. I'll keep this closer really short and simple, but I just want to thank Dylan for coming on the show and for providing some perspective from his experiences. That was, that was awesome. And thank you guys for listening as always. And if you'd like to support us, uh, once again, you can check out our Patreon in this episode's show notes. We will also link to some of Dylan's work in this uh, episode's show notes. And finally, uh, we will have a few more episodes for Protect Our Winners in this outdoor recreation and wildfire sort of intersection coming out in the next couple of weeks. So please stay tuned and give us a follow. Maybe share this episode with somebody who you think might enjoy it. And we will catch you on the next one. Thanks for listening. <laughs>